Well, hello, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price, and I'm your host. And I'm excited to bring you Dennis McKenna today. He's, uh, he's been somebody that I've been imagining would be on the podcast for a long time now, and I'm excited to... Uh, and I'm thankful, actually, to have the conversation. It, it was kind of surprising. I, he sent me a, a number of articles, and I, of course, read his website, and I'll get to all these notes in a minute. But the, his book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, was a memoir, and is a memoir, that he's, uh, that it's coming out with a second edition soon. Um, but it explores his life, uh, early life, uh, he and his brother Terrence, and, uh, and navigates through a lot of territories that I had not expected, um, his early childhood, um, really meaningful experiences that shaped him, of course, um, but also just making commentary on, on institutions and personal development and, um, and family. Uh, Dennis, I, I really appreciated this book, and, and thanks for putting it out there. And then, of course, it gets to the, the, the notion of um, what, what psychedelics or entheogens uh, provide for us and how they can be ev- evaluated scientifically, and what are the limitations there, and what do we need to be aware of as individuals who are curious about ecstatic experience or alternate states of consciousness. Uh, I'm, I'm really get grateful. Again, Dennis, thank you for this conversation. I want to get to a couple of notes for the podcast, and then I'll read his bio, and then we'll get cracking. So first and foremost, check out the Sacred Speaks website. It's thesacredspeaks.com. It is not totally up yet. Uh, it has been up before, but now we're re-renovating. <laughs> so the, the site is now maybe about a month out. And, uh, and we'll have a ton of information on there for you to check out, but be periodically checking that if you're so inclined. And uh, I'm excited to release that. We've been working on it for a long time now. So it's just, uh, it's like home renovations, I guess. It just takes a long time. Uh, the second is, of course, Modern Nations, the music for the podcast. The, the theme music is from a band, Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. And the song you can listen to at the very end of the episode is Clouds. Check it out. I highly recommend it. And the third link that I want to send you to is the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. It's a boutique integrative clinic that my wife and I started. And uh, we, we do a lot of different work there. Psychotherapists, Jungian analysts, um, uh, nutrition, acupuncture, herbs, uh, certainly traditional Chinese medicine, integrative work, uh, group work, individual work, family work. And uh, we're growing. We've just moved locations and so expanding and bringing more clinicians on. It's exciting work there. Check it out at thecenter4forhas.com. Of course, links below. Always check the show note links. And, uh, and then, oh yeah, I also, in, in reference to this episode, I have Mark Plotkin, a previous podcast participant. Go check his episode out. Uh, he's written a number of books. He's the leader of the Amazonian Conservation Foundation, and uh, just an all-around interesting fella. He's got a new um, Harvard, the Harvard Magazine. He's got a new article out in it. Go check that out. Mark, thanks for your connection here, and uh, I, I certainly appreciate the, the, the kind of web of uh, uh, this, this journey I'm on. Um, so much appreciated. In preparation, as I said in the episode, I listened to the Tim Ferriss interview with Dennis McKenna. It was pretty helpful. They went over this book, and I didn't want to do a lot of redundancy, um, so uh, we, we certainly dove into the book, but also went went off book plenty. So if you're looking for a resource to dive um, into this book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, you can also check that episode out. It came out in early May, so go to Tim Ferriss's website or Dennis McKenna's at the McKenna Academy, and I'll get to that in a sec. 
um, go to those websites to check out that link and listen to a really good interview with, between um, Tim and Dennis. On that note, check out McKenna Academy. It's McKenna.Academy. And it's a, a modern-day mystery school is the way they've got this positioned. Um, a great website, tons of information. Uh, but on that note, I'd like to read his bio and then uh, make one reference to a couple of the podcast interviews coming up in the way we get started. Dennis McKenna has conducted research in, the ethnopharmacolo- in ethnopharmacology for 40 years. Uh, for over 40 years, he's a founding board member of the Hefter Inst- Research Institute and was a key investigator on the Hoska, Hoaska pro- Project, the first biomedical investigation of ayahuasca. He's the brother, younger brother of Terrence McKenna from 2000 to 2017. He taught courses on ethnopharmacology and plants and human affairs as an adjunct assistant professor in the Center for Spirituality and Healing at the University of Minnesota. He immigrated to Canada in the spring of 2019 together with his wife, Sheila, and now resides in Abbotsford. Since 2019, he's been working with colleagues to manifest a long-term dream, the McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy, a nonprofit organization founded on the founded in the spirit of the ancient mystery schools and dedicated to the study of plant medicines, consciousness, intelligence in nature, preservation of indigenous knowledge, and a revisioning of humanity's relationship with nature. Dr. McKenna is author or co-author of six books and over 50 scientific papers in peer-reviewed journals. And he's an all-around interesting fella who I am grateful to. Then before we get started... Uh, What I want to let you know of is I've got some great interviews coming up over the next few months. I'm going to go into a hibernation period over the next month to do a lot of reading and preparation. I've got a number of comparative uh, religion folks, um, some more uh, descents into psychedelics. And and in particular, I've got the, the book I'm reading right now is Liquid Light, new book from Bill Bernard. He is a, uh, will be a second time podcast Sacred Speaks participant. This book is Ayahuasca, Spirituality, and the Santo Daime Tradition um, by Bill Bernard. And um, he's a professor at SMU. And when I interviewed him before, we were looking at his work with Henri Bergson uh, and William James. And uh, I, I'm, assume, I, I'm really liking this book so far, so I'm assuming we're going to get pretty deep. And, uh, and I'm always, as always, grateful for the opportunity to journey into these uh, territories with incredible authors. What a gift this is. Thank you for being here. And as always, if you are listening to this, check it out on YouTube. If you're on YouTube, you can also listen on the audio formats of the podcast, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud, and others. Uh, Please engage, like, share. Uh, Your help is much appreciated. This is totally a labor of love, (laughs) and uh, and I will continue because that's why I'm doing it. So thanks for being here, and, uh, and for now, we'll leave it there. Dennis, as I was saying a second ago, I'm f- feeling immensely grateful for this opportunity to talk to you, and it seems that we've, hit, we've been hit with two really um, meaningful moments already. The first is that your backdrop here is exactly where I wanted to start, and I'll get to that in a moment. Okay. The second is my daughter, I was downstairs about 10 minutes ago, and my daughter said, oh, Dad, I have something for you. And she had a stack of pictures. She's five. And she said, 
she said, here, this is for you. And she, of course, has no idea what we're doing, but... Oh, my God. That's... <laughs> Oh, yeah, I can see you've already been a bad influence <laughs> on your daughter. <laughs> That's wonderful. So, That's I great. know. A good little moment before we uh, we get cracking. And um, and I'll, I'll exude all my excitement as we go. But now to the second little bit of entanglement, synchronistic moment that we've had. You said, and I want to get into in- introductions. I want to tee that up, but this is just too nice. Would okay. you explain what that background shot is, please? Yes. So this is a picture of an ayahuasca vine. You can't really see it. I'm in front of it. But this is on the big island of Hawaii uh, at the place at Botanical Dimensions, which is the nonprofit that my brother and his wife started around uh, 1978. They had land up there. I was a graduate student at the University of Hawaii at the time. And I had a couple of cuttings of Banisteriopsis that I'd gotten from Tim Plowman that happened to be in the uh, Lion Arboretum in Hawaii. And so I brought these two cuttings over to the Big Island. That was 1976. So this is truly the mother vine of the Big Island. And of yeah. course, the Big Island is probably one of the densest locations of of ayahuasca constituents on the planet because because of the plants that i brought in there over over time you know i went to uh, peru in uh, 1981 as a graduate student we brought back quite a few live collections of of ayahuasca and the admixture plants but this predates all that i hmm. believe it was around I started graduate school there in 76, so it was around that time frame. And it's it's huge. Unfortunately, it doesn't look as nice as it does in the picture because it's knocked the tree down. That's what lianas do. Eventually, they'll knock the tree down. And now it just is a huge mountain of tangled twigs and branches and everything bigger than it ever was but it was pretty impressive when it was growing on the tree you know uh lianas can attain enormous size and this was probably about this weighed several tons and was about 1500 feet long i mean i didn't measure it but by my guess is that it was it's still thriving out there wow but it doesn't look as pretty. Well, the, the reason this image is the one that I wanted to start with is it, it had so much of your narrative in it. And just so the listeners are aware, one of the things I did is read um, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, your memoir. And, and then I watched True Hallucinations on YouTube. I listened to a great conversation that you and um, Tim Ferriss had. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so I, I, it's been a... It's been yeah, it's been a great kind of but I will say that your book you were you were saying, you know, this really is where you need to start and I'm glad you pointed me in that direction because it was so uh, I mean as we were saying earlier, there's such a diversity. I mean, you're obviously a multiplicity and uh and you really get that in your memoir. So I knew my phone was going to interrupt me at some point. Sorry. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> I thought it had defused, but not really. Okay. Anyway. Well, my, 
what I thought about was how we could use that garden as an image, because the one of the stories that came to mind that I read that was so interesting is that you were you were smuggling in or bringing in a lot of these plants, and at the immigration, you know, they they had to leave them and go through them and kill them a lot of them off, and I I thought there was this entanglement with the law, boundary lines with countries. Your brother was involved. Y'all were cultivating and working plants and bringing in these plants and exploring the relationship that we have with these medicines. So could you just start, you know, orienting us in that way, and then we'll go where we go? Well, so so I, uh, I went down to South America in 1981 when I was a graduate student uh, to investigate ayahuasca. I had actually been, uh, I was at the University of British Columbia at that time, and uh, I had been working on psilocybin. I had been, for about a year, I'd been working on psilocybin, and I'd come there to do that work, which had to do with uh, uh, characterizing the sort of genetic regulation of psilocybin biosynthesis and and identifying what the compounds were and hopefully isolating the enzymes in the synthesis and all that. And during the course of that first year of work, I had to take fungal genetics in order to do my work. Uh, I failed miserably. Uh, I had <laughs> a real complex. hard time with fungal genetics. <laughs> and uh, at the same time, that semester, I got into a very bad bicycle accident my first semester at UBC. So I was in the hospital for two or three weeks and I fell behind on some of my courses. So my supervisor at the time, Neil Towers, uh, who's a wonderful mentor to me or was when he was alive, just a great guy. He could see I was struggling and he could see that I was not that enthused at becoming a an enzymologist, which is what it would have amounted to. So he said, well, I've got a little extra money in the grant, you know, would you like to go to Peru? And I basically said, yes, my bags are packed. When do we leave? <laughs> you know, I was so ready to get out of the lab at that time. And so he was as good as his word. And although he didn't go with me, I went with another graduate student but we took off for South America in uh, January 1982. And uh, was, no, wait a minute, January 1981. Uh, I'd been there, I came there in 79. And we took off and uh, I completely shifted the focus of my thesis work to do a comparative study of uh, ayahuasca from the standpoint of its constituents, its botanical sources, its pharmacology, and so on, with another much more obscure uh, sort of botanical complex, uh, and another orally active tryptamine-based uh, psychedelic or hallucinogen, as we called them in those days, uh, derived from completely different botanical sources. The derived from Varola, which is a, a member of the nutmeg family, the sap of which is full of DMT and 5-methoxy-DMT and uh, is used as a snuff by different mm. uh, tribes in the Amazon, particularly the Yanomami. Uh, but I was interested in it because it was also used 
a couple of tribes used it as an orally active preparation. And there are various names for it, but the one that the Witoto name is something like Ukuhe. I can't really say it properly, but I call it Ukuhe. And it's prepared as a oral preparation. And so like ayahuasca, uh, it's an orally active tryptamine potentiated by presumably beta carbolates, but that was the question. Ayahuasca is, you know, the, the psychedelic constituent of ayahuasca is DMT from the admixture plants. But then the vine from which the bark, which, which this, this is the vine, Banisteriopsis, uh, supplies the beta carbolates, which are monoamine oxidase <laughs> inhibitors. So you inhibit monoamine oxidase and you can render DMT orally active. And that was fairly well understood at that time that that was what was going on, although nobody had actually demonstrated that it worked that way. But then there was this other, you know, botanical complex that presumably worked by the same mechanism. So my, my thesis work became essentially a comparison of these two different things, not really related to each other in a ethnographic way, although the Witoto, man, like most of the tribes down there, they, they took ayahuasca, but they had this special thing, this orally active preparation. So I wanted to delve into the pharmacology and the chemistry of these two things and see how similar they were. And, and it's that's, so that's much so, sorry to jump in. I was, it's, it was interesting at one point when you were saying that you brought different um, mixtures from different shaman. And so mm -hmm. you were really looking at the chemical constituents in these different mixes. And what did right. you discover through that? Well, I discovered uh, that uh, well, one thing I discovered was that they were amazingly consistent. I, I <laughs> most most of my uh, most of my samples came from one person, you know, that I spent some time with. He and his uncle, my first informant, and Don Fidel Mosambite, who was, uh, uh, you know, who was introduced to me or or who I met because. Uh, Terence and Kat had been to Pucallpa uh, about four years earlier looking for ayahuasca. They connected with this guy. And uh, so when I went to uh, Pucallpa in 81, I had, you know, I had his name. I didn't know how to get in touch with him, but I had his name and easily enough contacted, you know, I went to the marketplace Terrence said, just talk to the weirdest looking old woman that you can find <laughs> in the herbal stalls and she'll tell you, you know. And so that's what happened. I found this woman whose name I think was Isahora, if I remember. And she said, oh, yeah, Don Fidel. Everybody knows Don Fidel. He lives over here in this little village. You know, you go here and then you go left and he'll come to his house. So I came we, we, my, my uh, companion and I, Don McRae, the other graduate student, set out to find him and we did. We went to his house and, you know, the, it was not a era when you could send a text or an email or anything. Mm -hmm. You just showed up. So here's Don and I, two absolutely clueless gringos, 
you know, barely speaking any Spanish, you know, but we went and we talked to him and I introduced myself and explained that I was the brother of these, this guy that had been there four years ago. And we were interested in basically the, the, the conversation is to the degree I could carry it out was, you know, we want to learn everything you know about ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he sort of looked at us and, you know, didn't say much and said, mm-hmm. all right. <laughs> and, and so we ended up spending quite a bit of time with Don Fidel, uh, taking the medicine, but also mm-hmm. uh, getting different preparations. He was really very, he understood why we were there. That he understood the principles of science enough that, to know that we wanted to look into this from the botanical point of view. So he made several preparations while we were in the vicinity and, uh, and you know, very kindly let us film the whole process, collect samples of the admixture plants and the, and the ingredient plants and, and samples of the brew to take back for chemical analysis. So, so that was one aspect of the work. And I, I collected, I was there about six months doing field work. I collected other sources of ayahuasca as well during that time from other people the main constituents were pretty consistent from mm-hmm. batch to batch. Don Fidel's group, Don Fidel's collection was, uh, you know, practically pharmaceutically uh, consistent. I mean, every batch was similar to the to other batches. So he had a standard method. Frankly, for all I know, maybe all the samples were the same sample, but I don't think so because he made several different preparations for us. The Ukuhe, which we collected later in a different part of Peru, was uh, a much different story uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, it it was a dying knowledge. It was, it Mm -hmm. was, uh, we went to, uh, we went up north to Iquitos and then downriver from Iquitos to a town called Pavis, about a day, about most of a day's uh, boat ride down down river, and then up a river called uh, the Yampiyaku. And the river Yampiyaku means the river of poisons. And it was uh, it was so called because it was famous for an arrow poison mm. that was made by the people in the region. And the people in the region were. Witotos and Boras, mostly Witotos, but Boras. And those folks had been forcibly relocated from north of the Putumayo during the rubber boom um, early in the 20th century. So La Churera, which is famous in the mythology of Terry and Denny, you know, we went to La Churera and got into all sorts of trouble. But, but they, they were originally, that was their ancestral home. And that's why we went to La Chirera originally in 1971 was to find this legendary uh, orally active tryptamine based plant that was not ayahuasca, you know, that was different than ayahuasca. And, and actually in 1971, 
the pharmacology and chemistry of ayahuasca was not that well understood. It was understood that, that uh, you know, Banisteriopsis was a key ingredient. Other plants were added, but it wasn't really elucidated that these were actually the psychedelics, the DMT-containing mm -hmm. plants. By the time I did my work in 81, this was, had all been worked out. You know, we knew about the other admixture plants and so on. But I, I went to, we went up to Pucalpa and up to this village called uh, Puku or Kio on the river Ampiyaku to find the Ukuhe. And the, the folks there were, uh, you know, they were Bora and Muinani and, and uh, uh, Witoto, uh, primarily, very closely related groups. How do they All react of, to you? Hmm? How do they react to you? Uh, fine. There was no problem, really. I mean, we, we were working with a, a guide, a, a person from the university at that time, uh, a, a fellow who was also essentially a graduate student at the University of Iquitos, UNAP, and his supervisor uh, of the the curator of the herbarium at, at UNAP had, had basically designated one and just, I'm sure the conversation was something like, you know, these gringos are here, they're completely clueless, take them to the field, <laughs> get some plants, bring them back in one yeah, piece. But th this is the interesting thing that you you mentioned a, a phrase um, that I want to get into, and you're hitting all the things I already want. <laughs> Extra environmental, you know. You're, so you're looking at the way in which anthropologists function and are in of yet out of essentially the community, mm -hmm. and and so I want to talk about this term. But you're you're coming, you're arriving at a place to explore a, a kind of sacred, religious, magico tradition sacrament. And, and I, you're approaching it from one reason, and they use it for a different reason. And where do those things overlap, and where do they contrast? Well, what what we found when we when we actually got up there was that uh, uh, you know because we had Juan with us, and he actually grew up in this area, so he knew these people, or some of them anyway. He was familiar with the community, so that was our that was our ticket into these villages that and a tape recording that we had brought uh, that was made by a woman named uh, Adriana Loyaza, Loyaza, who was a Witoto uh, from one of the Witoto communities up there. And she lived in Iquitos and she actually worked for the Amazon natural drug company Hmm. So we had had a connection to her yeah, from Tim Plowman. Mm -hmm. We went to see her and she very kindly made a tape recorded introduction for us, you know, in Witoto that we could give to this, <laughs> the headman of this village, who was basically her grandfather or uncle or some relative. So that got us in, you know, in the sense that we could say, you know, Adriana is a friend of ours. She said, we should come talk to you. And, and so we, uh, we got up there and, uh, and what we found was that this knowledge of, of the Ukuhe or the Kuruku as the Boras 
called it. There were a couple similar names, but we found that this knowledge was basically disappearing knowledge mm -hmm. that, that, you know, these cultures had been so impacted by the trauma and the atrocities of the rubber boom uh, around, you know, between 1910 and 1920, they were forcibly forced out of their ancestral home, forced south of the Putumayo, and these communities became reconstituted more or less, but they lost, lost a lot. And, and, you know, what gets lost when when the when the religious or the shamanic traditions the ethnomedical traditions are you know vilified and denounced by the missionaries and all this stuff this plant knowledge is among the first to go you know the first parts of the of their culture to go so we went there and we contacted these people and a lot of them said uh, I don't know. I sort of remember. I think my grandfather did this. I kind of remember he was into this or, you know, I don't know. But but they all were uh, game to try to uh, to try to duplicate it, to try to make it, you know, and because it wasn't particularly a secret. It came from these varolas, which were very common in the area. Everybody called them kumalas. But they were not uncommon plants. Everybody knew what varolas were. And some of the medicine people there knew that they, you know, there was this ancestral formulation, this psychoactive formulation. So they said, well, sure, I'll, you know, I'll try to duplicate it, especially if you pay me. And we did. We paid them, watched them prepare the the brews, the, the, well, what they are is a paste eventually. They extract the bark and they concentrate the sap and they end up with this paste that you take orally and it has a very fast onset, supposedly, and, uh, and very short duration, which is what you'd expect from a trip to me. And uh, so they made it and, uh, and we... I think we got a total of about seven samples that were prepared by different practitioners. And we bioassayed all of those in the field. Being ethnopharmacologists, that's our job, right? We have to see if they're actually active. Is there anything there or are these people fully their leg or whatever? So we had to test them. And uh, of the samples that we tried, uh, three or four of them, about three of them didn't do a darn thing. You know, as far as I could tell, they were completely inactive. We didn't get a, uh, you know, we didn't even get an upset stomach for our trouble. A couple of them, though, were quite active. I lost and, again. Yeah, and, and they were, you know, they were uh, not particularly pleasant, not particularly even psychedelic, but definitely psychoactive. And, uh, and at the time, I remember, you know, there were a couple of, uh, of these, these gentlemen that really did kind of remember how to do it, you know, or they just got lucky. I'm not sure. But anyway, they hit. And uh, then when we got it back to the lab, we got, and of course, we took samples of all the trees that they came from, any other ingredients that they had. Did all this analysis, and we found that 
unlike ayahuasca, the ukuhe was extremely variable chemically, you know, not too surprising. There were many species of varola. Some of them didn't have any alkaloids at all, you know. Others had alkaloids. They had tryptamines. Some of these preparations had very high levels of, of tryptamines. And, and I remember the one that stuck out in... Would in you define of, that just for any... Because I'm... The one thing... Oh, oh, yeah. I lost your camera feed, by the way. The, oh, the, again. The, <laughs> the one thing that... Because uh, I'm hearing all the, the terms, you know, and, and you're actually going into what I envisioned we would get into a bit, which is... You, at one point, let me find the name of this, you were teaching a class, Plants in Human Affairs. Yes. And I, I found myself being curious for a kind of ethnopharmacological neurotransmitter 101 class and looking at Plants in Human Affairs, because th- this stuff gets... I, I'll tell you what I'm after. One of the things that I'm, I'm really interested in is that you seem to operate in a place at the, at the connection point, uh, looking at what they call the hard problem of consciousness. And yes. th- there's something about your interest and even the tension between you and your brother regarding the kind of rational sciences and then this esoteric, uh, exotic, kind of poetic, artistic aspect, aspect of expression. And so that tension's really held throughout your life regarding the science and maybe the, the humanities and the sciences are, are held together well there. Mm-hmm. Um, but So I'm curious if we can use kind of what you're talking about regarding the ayahuasca and the experimentation and talk about a, an overview of what these principles are and why in the hell psychedelics work on us in the way that they do, and then getting into the metaphysics, this piece about consciousness, which takes us deeply into your time and all kinds of other things but would you would you kind of meander around that territory for a little bit well sure i mean i uh uh i uh you know i i, I my stance was from science but that said i'm not a reductionist you yeah. know i, I think that. that i i don't think anybody that messes with psychedelics can really be a reductionist <laughs> you know uh it's a good statement because you know if there's one thing they do they bring into focus the limitations of our knowledge you know and yeah. how little we really know about what is really going on in this realm of what is consciousness what is our apprehension of it and so on. But that said, I always felt, I felt then, and I still feel that science is a good springboard from which to start, you know, and uh, realizing ahead of time that it's inherently limited. It's not going to give you a, a, uh, a full holistic understanding of what's going on, but it's a place to start from. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this was an ongoing uh, you know, sort of, I wouldn't call it tension, but sort of differing views between Terence and myself, especially after our experiences at La Chirera. You know, Terence... Which were radical. Kind of, he, well, he kind of came back and said, science can never explain what happened to us. You know, science is bullshit. Let's just throw the whole thing out because it's not adequate to it. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Before we do that, 
you know, we need to understand what science is. You know, we need to understand how to do science because we went there thinking, you know, we're great scientists. Actually, we were just a couple <laughs> of crazy people, you know, but, but, uh, you know, and so my reaction, his reaction to the experience of La Chirera that we had was to more or less reject science, come back and start constructing these metaphysical constructs about the time wave and all of this stuff, which whatever you might think about them, they're really not scientific, you know? And uh, I think that's a shame because I think they could have been benefited from some scientific perspective. Hmm. My reaction was to come back. And for one thing, I was very invested in keeping my feet on the ground again, getting my feet back on you the ground. You have a very interesting saw... way of demonstrating your feet on the ground, Dennis. Well, because <laughs> of what I'd gone through, my, my, uh, my return to science to go back into my academic work was almost a, a reaction to what had happened to us. It was like, mm -hmm. I've had enough of this. I just want to study plants and chemistry and molecules and something you know, concrete. Something concrete. Yeah. And so I spent the time to get those skills, and also with this idea that really I have to know before I can reject science, I have to know how to do science and what kind of <laughs> thinking goes into it. This is partly why, uh, you know, my under graduate degree uh before i you know before i got into after i returned from uh from la Chirera, i went i was studying anthropology and comparative religions before which is mm -hmm. useful i came back and i started studying chemistry and botany and these more hard sciences kind of thing and uh but also philosophy of science you know and at the same time terence and i were trying to puzzle out what the hell had happened to us, what was going down when we went to La Chirera. So we were both delving into, you know, uh, process theory, Whitehead's process theory, uh, primarily that was as well as, you know, all the Jungian psychology and, yeah. and shamanism and all that, which we were into before. But uh, when I, but, you know, flash forward 10 years to 1981, when I came back, when I, I mean, I, I went to the Amazon in 1981 as a graduate student, bound and determined that I was not going to go crazy this time. And I was going to do some ethnobotany, you know, I was not interested in uh, destabilizing space-time. You know? We need to maybe, just just for any member of the audience that's watching or listening, this is one of the more radical <laughs> literary descents that I've I've ever read. It was a it was a really interesting experience, and uh, so I would urge everybody listening and watching to go watch uh, True Hallucinations. Of course, read the book, mm -hmm. um, but for the benefit of those who haven't yet, would you give a little bit on? Because this experiment, <laughs> that's not science, but I think it's radical. So just. Let people know a little bit. Yeah, it's radical. And it's also something I hate to talk about these days because it's so hard 
to explain it. And, uh, and we'll just go down that rabbit hole and we'll sure. never get anywhere. But, but people can, uh, it, best thing is to read True Hallucinations or my book, which I really think they go together. Yeah. You know, they really have to read both. But then also uh, the uh, McKenna Academy uh, in 2021 did a did a retrospective on the experiment at La Chirera, uh, in the believe it or not what was it it was the 50 year retrospective of the experiment at La Chirera, which was 1971 so people couldn't look at that I think there's no there's no fire paywall or anything they could look at that if they want to get a quick thumbnail sketch of what the experiment at La Chirera was you know or read read the book but but basically i guess the you know without getting into it the you know when we went to la chirera what what took us to la chirera was the fact that we'd read that this is where this weird varola orally active hallucinogen was right that and that was a paper by schultes and he reported it he said he collected at La Chirera, and this is a total thing. That was the reason we went to La Chirera. You know, when we got to La Chirera, then, uh, you know, what we found, well, now you're seducing me into telling this story, but, but what, <laughs> you know, what, what we found was that, number one, uh, an anthropologist that we'd encountered on our way in had said, you can't just go in there and start talking about this. This is mm-hmm. like big magic, you know, big, very taboo thing. And you guys are clearly nuts and you will not be welcome if you, you know, they might kill you. We were pretty cavalier about that, but we decided, we went on to La Chirera from that encounter and, uh, we did. We sort of heeded his advice. We didn't go in and start blabbing about Ukuve. He's, he was appalled that we even knew anything about it, you know. But we learned this from this paper by Schultes. But so we went there, and then what we found was that the mission. It was a little Capuchin mission village. They had cleared the area and. Uh, about 200 acres around the area, they brought in these Cebu cattle and, you know, the humpbacked white cattle. Well, mm-hmm. the dung of those cattle is the preferred substrate for Psilocybe cubensis, which is like the pan-tropical psilocybin mushroom, yeah. you know, and it was the rainy season and these damn things were everywhere. They were growing out of every cow pie, you know, and, uh, and we knew what they were. We had no experience with them previously, but we knew what they were. And we sort of, we were very sort of, you know, I mean, it was like, you know, we thought, well, you know, we're here for the real secret, which is Ukuhe, you know, but these are here and these will be nice to play with and we can have fun. We approached them not respectfully as we should have uh, as sort of a recreational activity. And, but they quickly made clear that they were the real secret, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, it developed from there. They started essentially 
downloading a lot of information and uh, you know what my brother liked to call funny ideas that we that we then acted on and uh, and I'm not going to go any further. People can read about this yeah. on the website or read the books. Uh, but so in some ways, the return to South America, I didn't go to South America for 10 years. The return to South America in a certain sense was several things for me. One was the personal, the personal thing to just demonstrate to myself that I could go to the field, do, you know, good or relatively good, maybe not even very good, but I could do ethnobotany, you know, and I just have those very reductionist realistic goals. I wanted to do that. And I, I also felt that the whole Ukuhe quest, which has sort of gotten pushed aside at La Chirera, uh, was unfinished business. So it was useful to go back and take another look at that. And that was the reason I wanted to do this thing. In the meantime, of course, we had, uh, you know, we, we discovered ayahuasca and, uh, and that was also very important. So, so anyway, this became this, this comparative study uh, uh, between Ukuhe and ayahuasca. Well, I want to, I, I want to note something because from my kind of certainly professional and personal spiritual realm, uh, there's one moment that stands out. And of course you just wave this away if you don't want to go into it. But uh, the, the, the real essence of you seemingly experiencing, experiencing a psychosis, if we could call it that, and, and dis, somehow um, disassociating from you know, the, the common ego state, and then everybody freaks out. This is my projection onto it. Everybody freaks out. It's going, holy fuck, what's going on with Dennis? This is crazy. And all, everybody's offering their perspectives. And your brother says, well, hang on, we got to let this thing f f go. Yeah. And, and what's so interesting to me is I've been to, um, given what I do, I've been into space, mental health facilities that, that hold people who are psychotic. And I think we need to have those places. And I think those are valuable. But the ways in which we do it really um, bring out a paranoia and a sense of threat because we don't exactly enter into somebody's space in a loving, compassionate, connected way right. while there's this vulnerability. So right. that moment, I, my researcher came out and I wanted to chat with this a little with you about this because that's fascinating to me. And I just want to hear your experience of what that's I like. am so grateful to Terrence that he held the line. He was absolutely right. We needed to let this play out, yeah. you know, and at a certain point in the proceedings, our companions were very alarmed and, and they wanted to get us out there. They wanted us to be airlifted to a psychiatric facility and, uh, you know, and get these people on Thorazine or whatever the, whatever the treatment would have been. Yeah. And Terrence was absolutely right. He resisted that and he resisted it in part because we were both crazy, but we were crazy in a complementary way. We understood between us what was going on. I mean, you know, that this was, we were in a complementary state of mind and we understood or thought we did what was going on. But 
and it wasn't exactly an off an option. I mean, you can't call nine eleven and have <laughs> right. somebody come get you. You know, it's a big deal to get airlifted out of the Amazon. But Terry was absolutely right. It's just, just hang on. This will resolve itself, and it did. It did eventually. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, what it was, I, I even do a talk. So was it a psychosis? Was it a shamanic initiation? Was it an alien abduction? <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I think it had elements of all three. Definitely there were psychotic elements to it. It was certainly, a lot of it was similar to shamanic initiation. You know, many of the themes and so on, although I don't claim to be a shaman, never have, but there were elements of that. Mm-hmm. And there were elements of alien abduction. I actually have a talk about this that makes the uh, case kind of tongue-in-cheek, but kind of not tongue-in-cheek, that argues that, yeah, this was an alien abduction of some sort. We were certainly laboring under the notion that we were in touch with an intelligence, which was either the mushroom itself or something channeling through the mushroom that was downloading all this all this information. And then there were elements that were clearly, you know, the, the classic alien abduction, you know, scenario, including my brother's encounter with this UFO, you know, late in, in the process, which I can't verify. I didn't see it. I was still cruising the cosmos at that point. I did not see it. I choose to believe that he's not making it up you know, that that actually happened. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I I really don't know. One thing I can tell you is uh, everything that we had predicted as we developed this this sort of metaphysical structure of expectations around what was going to happen, none of that took place, you know, or we wouldn't be here at this Mm -hmm. point, you know. But uh, so uh, it's kind of strange, actually, uh, uh, John, to in some ways be known for, you know, uh, to be famous for your psychosis that you had when you were 20 years old, you know. (laughs) Uh, I could say the same for a lot of, there's a lot in there about that narrative, you know, losing oneself you know, going on a kind of journey to repair the process. It's a religious orientation, finding meaning and a kind of worldly orientation after the underworld descent. It has all the threads. Yeah. I don't regret any of it. I mean, it was actually a very valuable experience. It was a very healing experience. And a lot of it, I think, for both Terrence and me, really go goes back to the fact that our mother had died just uh, a few months before we taken off for South America. We were both incredibly, you know, impacted by that, by her loss after long battle with cancer. And, uh, and, you know, there was a great deal of familial uh, elements of this and a, a sense of guilt, actually, that we had not been good sons, you know, that we had really hurt her 
by not being, uh, you know, the boys that she had hoped we would be, you know, <laughs> by getting into drugs and all these other things that she didn't know anything about, and of course was terrified about, and uh, mm -hmm. and so a lot of it in our personal dynamic was essentially a a way to uh, to make up for that in so, in some ways. There was a very personal element to this, uh, and you know, even well, I uh, you know, I I don't know. I mean, you. You've done it. You forced me to talk about this. <laughs> I swore I wasn't going to, but but that was a big element. And so I guess I guess the point is here: we did go to South America with a lot of trauma about her death and a lot of guilt about how, you know, now she was gone and we didn't really honor her the way we should have while she was alive, and. Uh, uh, and so this was an attempt to somehow heal that. And, uh, uh, and it was healing. It was healing on that level. It was healing. And, you know, I was 20 years old. I mean, that's classically the age when you go through these initiatory experiences. And that's what it was. So I don't, uh, I mean, you can analyze it a lot of different ways. You could say, well, it was the psychosis. Certainly, there were elements of that. You could say it was a shamanic initiation. There were elements of that. You could say it's alien abduction. All of these things are labeled labels for what was a unique experience, you know. Well, I, and the thing I, is, it made me a better person. You know, I, I, mean, I feel like I am. Uh, I am more stable than I was then. I, I mean. Uh, I just feel that ultimately it was beneficial, uh, you know. This uh, is the piece that um, Jeff Kripal talks about that that the paranormal and a paranormal event is also is oftentimes paired with a trauma or crisis. Hence the yes. reason why it can't be replicated in laboratory setting because we can't kind of recreate trauma. But right. this, there is something about this, and then we can't just separate it off and say, "Oh, this is only some psychodynamic." Um, eruption of uh, enormous conflict between two siblings who are mourning the loss of their mother and dealing with enormous grief and shame about like that but not just that right there's that that has to be seemingly part of the equation because telekinesis <laughs> can happen when there's trauma or seemingly some kind of a overwhelming force that's creating a, a crack in the ego structure which takes us to psychedelics too right 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 it's very hard to boil these things down to uh, to these reductionist categories, and that's a limitation of science, you know. That, and I think that's why, and you know, you yourself, you're a psychologist. You every day you confront the the inadequacies of these models. You yeah. know, I mean, you can talk about them, you can label them, you can apply fancy terminologies and understandings to them but all of that is not really identical with people's personal experience and and that's the thing about psychedelics it's intensely personal nobody can replicate your psychedelic experience that's right. one of the beautiful things about psychedelics i can't have yours and you can't have mine we can only have our own 
can I let me know. let me read from you for a second and because um, this this is on topic with we're we're we'll hang back to some of these threads because I still want to pick that thread up about the hard problem and um and then the what what was our term extra environmental talk about cultural tensions. Um but I, I want to read just to see where this takes us. Um so this is a couple of different places in your book. Uh, okay. Could the body really produce a substance that was a fusion of matter and mind and that contained metalinguistic idea complexes that can only be comprehended in a state of profound tryptamine intoxication? So let me, I'm going to stop myself, actually, because I read that. That's quite a, a lot. <laughs> Would you go into this? Because this has a lot of levels to it. You were talking about language and, you know, this. Could you speak to that for a moment? Well, yeah. I mean, this this was the uh, this this was the premise of the experiment at La Churera, you know, is that we could produce this magical substance with sound by listening to what we could hear in our heads on the on the high doses of mushrooms and directing that sonic energy toward a mushroom to set up a resonance uh, in the DNA of both organisms and and here's where it gets fuzzy i mean it's all it's all kind of fuzzy but <laughs> but you know affect this transdimensional transformation set up this uh superconducting standing waveform that comes from the dna that was radiating out information you know uh kind of and, and you know there are so many you know, assumptions about that, that we didn't question at the time. But it, in retrospect, of course, I have to question the idea that this kind of, uh, you know, information is stored in the base pairs of DNA. And can you access it? Is, is it a, is it a uh, you know, is it a repository of uh, this kind of information, like the Akashic records, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. well, this doesn't reflect anything that we know about DNA, you know, ex except that now molecular biology has shown that some, in some ways, the, the, you know, genomic information can resemble language in the sense that it has syntax and, you know, but whether it relates to this, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It it was a wild idea, but then also if you look at different, uh, um, you know, if you look at Eastern mystical traditions, particularly yoga and this sort of thing, the idea that you can generate a substance, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is like with the pineal gland and that sort of thing. And of course, we know the pineal gland does contain tryptamines and whether that has anything to do with this, we don't know. I doubt it actually. Well, this I is don't... body as apothecary. Essentially. Yes. Yes, exactly. Uh, uh, perform exactly perform an alchemical transformation using ourselves as the as the alembic exactly the reaction vessel and turn and create a substance that, as the book says, is a, is a fusion of matter and mind, you know, and it's a fascinating idea, very Hell seductive yeah, idea, <laughs> you know, 
I mean, we were certainly seduced by it. <laughs> well, but it gets to that core question about um, that intersection point between matter and mind. And that mm -hmm. seems to occupy us quite a bit. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's the, the terrain. And, um, and it seems like, well, it, it seems like one of the things that you and your brother are really dancing around is this kind of rational, irrational piece that mm -hmm. that they're and you're you're looking at ecstatic experience in particular the use of these sacramental substances that are in you know kind of involved in these magical religious traditions and they so what what do they do let's i don't i don't want to fill in the blanks what do these substances do and why do they tend to be so connected with religion and magic mm, well uh I think, you, you know, uh, you have to, this goes back to the importance of set and setting with these, with these things. You have to create a vessel for these processes to unfold, you know, and, and that's what we were doing in a very elaborate way. We were creating, a, a, you know, I mean, we call it the experimental luxury you know, mm -hmm. but in no way was it an experiment. We should have called, but the implication of experiment was that, you know, it was controllable, it was replicable, <laughs> it was a scientific thing. We were, we were laboring under the scientific delusion. We were not doing science, you know, we were doing ritual. We should have called it the ritual at La Chirera. It would have been a it, it would have been a uh, much more accurate thing. We were, we were creating our own ritual space for very peculiar things to happen. Well, you could go to any, you know, ayahuasca ceremony and, and much the same thing is going to go on. They're not calling, they're not claiming it's an experience, but it's important to have that special sacred place and time for these things to to occur and it's it's not profane time you know in the, in the way that Iliade talks about these yeah. things when you create this ritual nexus of space and time it is though you know you're you are back you're in the center of the universe you're at the beginning of time you're and they see it as you actually are there and who knows maybe you are but uh that is uh it's like if it's it's like if it's like a fusion reaction or an atomic reaction or something. It's like you have to have a vessel, create a mm -hmm. vessel that holds these energies, you know. And once you've done that, then you have to let it go. You have to trust that you know you uh, you have to trust the process. You have to surrender to it. This is why the the uh, why this this concept of set and setting, which is often not really, you know, I mean, it, it's understood in a shallow way, but it's really an important determinant of the outcome of these things because, and even on the therapeutic level, you know, you're, you're putting yourself in a situation where you must trust the medicine and you must trust yourself and you must trust the circumstances. You're deliberately uh, disabling, you know, what 
the mechanisms that maintain ordinary reality, you know, mm -hmm. and what the mm -hmm. neuroscientists are now calling the default mode network, you know. Uh, that's, well, and, that's... and, and that, that there's a there's a real big piece to this that the sacred isn't. See, we've made the sacred into an actual place, and it can be a place. But what you're saying is that there's something like psycho-emotional, there's a mentation or a kind of um, imaginative space. And and that word is loaded, imagination. Like, I don't mean not real. I, I mean hyper-real. I mean, like, right. imagination is kind of the, 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 the world of consciousness that we're in. So when that that is emerging, that, that you're allowing for... Um, all the other stuff to to fade away, the profane, and you're creating a temple mm -hmm. um, in your experience for the magic to for to to relate with the unseen world, which is not just when I close my eyes. Literally, it's right now, right here. It's beyond my sensory perception. Right. To, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And and that's exactly what you're doing. And and so. You have to uh, make sure, you know, the real world doesn't go away. But what what you want to do is make sure that the real world doesn't get in the way of creating this magical space-time process <laughs> that you're creating. You do not want the phone to ring. You don't want people coming around, you know, the cops, especially knocking your door down or whatever. You have to, you have to uh, honor the, the, the potency of these experience to, uh, to realize that they're very special. And, and that's why they should be rare and they should be approached thoughtfully and carefully. And you need to be sure that you're, you're number one safe physically you mm -hmm. know that that you're with people you can trust and uh that you're you know that you've you've looked to all those variables so you don't have to worry about that you have to pay attention to what's gonna unfold once you've made that once you've done everything you can to ensure that it's appropriate you know and i think most of the problems people get into with psychedelics is they don't pay attention to that you know they approach it cavalierly and not really pay enough attention to to uh you know set and setting and mm -hmm. set and setting is a complex set of variables you know i mean set setting it clearly where you do it and that you know that has its elements setting is by far set is the most is the most complex act, uh, aspect of this because set is you, you know, yeah. set is everything you bring yeah. to it. All of your knowledge, your memories, your expectations, your intention. I mean, the set is the complex, uh, you know, subject of the experience. You're, you're, you're approaching it, surrendering to it. And then of course the other, you know, the other variables that impact on this is what is the medicine and what is the dose? All of those things are going to be important. But set and setting, and especially set, are the things that, uh, you know, you have to pay attention to. And, and we we did, and we and it paid off, you know. Yeah, you built a certain, the temple. Yeah, yeah, we built the temple. Well, the other thing that you talk about, I want to read from you again here, is is something that happened um the kind you know when you look at the mystical experience and you feel this kind of download there's a 
Um, so whether there's a tendency for this to be imaged as a godhead or an alien figure or the self, capital S, in a kind of traditional Jungian idea, that what you say is of this teacher, and I think I want to unpack this a bit, whatever it was, the teacher was full of interesting suggestions about how our investigation should proceed. We began to think pure logos had taken physical form, that is, manifested itself as a substance composed of mind, of language, of meaning itself, yet all somehow grounded in a biological substrate. We used the term translinguistic matter to describe this mysterious substance, and we speculated that somehow it was produced in the peculiar state created by ingesting tryptamines. We figured this matter was psilocybin or DMT that had been rotated through the fourth dimension so that the trip was on the outside of the molecule. The more we kicked around these concepts, the more excited we became. So this... And this has happened, you're consciously having these thoughts, right, about what this mm-hmm. process is about. So you're right. getting images, right? Will you speak to this about the teacher? Yeah, so, you know, so we had, as I say, this sense of channeling something or, or of getting all this information from some source that we that we exteriorized as a teacher, you yeah. know, whether the mushroom or, or something else. The information that was being downloaded was, you know, in retrospect, just batshit crazy. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, it was not, you know, but we were not in a, we were not interested in being reductionist or analytical about it. What was being downloaded, we just took as a matter of course. Well, it's coming from the teacher, so of course it's true, right? And we weren't we weren't questioning it or analyzing it. That wasn't what we were there for. We were there to follow the instructions that were coming and build the damn starship, you know, out of our <laughs> own bodies. We weren't we weren't you know questioning it. We should have done more questioning, perhaps, and maybe we we wouldn't have gone so far. But the the uh, and it's interesting that you mentioned this uh, this thing, you know, which was central to the to the concept of of turning the trip through the fourth dimension. Well, that's if you think about it, that's just a complete misunderstanding of what these things are. You know, the trip is not built into the molecule. The trip is what happens when the molecule and interfaces with a complex nervous system, you know, to produce the trip. The molecule on the shelf or, you know, is is nothing. It, It just is a molecule, but it has to go through you know, it, it's almost, uh, and I think I even use this analogy in the book, it's like a piece of music, you know, yeah. a piece of music on a piece of paper is not music. Only when it's played, does it become music? Well, only when yeah. the molecule is metabolized, does it produce a trip? But we misunderstood that, you know, and we, we did and we didn't. We you know, but we had this idea that somehow the trip is in the molecule. No, the trip is within us. You know, the molecule is just the catalyst that lets that that lets that happen. So that was a serious like misunderstanding of what was going on. Uh, you know, 
because the trip is not built into the molecule. Well, what you know? what does it mean to you that that we have that capacity? Because obviously we take this molecule and we have these. There there are th- certain thematic patterns that show up in you know if you and I both have an ayahuasca experience. I'm imagining that there are certain kind of experiences that will say, oh yeah, that was my teacher, and oh mine was an alligator, and yours was a jaguar. So those are themes. And so what's your best uh, theory for why we have these predispositions to take this molecule and have the subjective experiences that we do that are so rich with meaning? Well, I think, you know, I I think that uh, people like to push the boundaries, you know? I mean, ordinary consciousness can get kind of boring after a while you know it's just day-to-day consciousness even as remarkable as it is you know and the fact is that you know we are you know we're made of drugs that's you know we're (laughs) we're we're uh you know we're not objects we you know you look like a solid object so do i most of the time you know, and we think of ourselves that way, but we're processes, you know, uh, yeah, metabolism yeah. is a process. We are oscillating systems unfolding through time, you know, and when that stops, when metabolism stops, we're very boring. That's because we're dead. You know, nothing interesting is going on unless we're te- metabolizing. And this is a way to tweak the metabolism, you know, and, and send, send uh, you know, this experience of being an organism unfolding through time, send it off on this kind of, you know, interesting detour, you know, uh, a kind of a, uh, call it a, uh, you know, uh, a, a, an interesting back alley or byway of consciousness. You're definitely stepping off the freeway. You know, and you're you're exploring some some pretty uh, obscure areas of consciousness, but it's still all part of this process. You know, I mean, I think until you can literally until metabolism stops and you die, you're always in some state, you know, and some states, uh, you know, and some states are different than others, you know, way when you feel sleepy, when you feel stimulated, when you feel, and you can just uh, add these molecules into the mix and that will tweak it. Everything that you experience is a reflection of your, of your neurochemical brain states, basically everything that you experience. And in fact, I would venture to say, there's nothing outside that experience is all you have, you know, what you experience in the moment is all that there is, you know, your memories are part of that, but they are not, you know, I mean, the past is gone. The future hasn't happened yet. You're in the moment and you may recollect things from the past, but that's not the same. You may anticipate what's going to happen that's the future, but you're in you're in the moment, you know. And and the other aspect of this, I think, that's important to to remember is anything that you experience is real, you know. And 
the fact that you can experience may, means that it is real and in that you experience it. Now, whether it has an external <laughs> reflection, I don't know. I mean, you know, the walls melting and the, and the, you know, the, the creatures appearing out of nowhere and all this stuff. I don't know if it's objectively real. My guess is probably not. It's a construct of the mind, but, but you're experiencing it. And so it's real. I mean, this is something that applies to every aspect of experience and, and when what your experience, uh, you know, edges toward the paranormal or the unexplainable or the anomalous, you can't dismiss it just because that's happening. It's still real. It's something valid for you that is experienced. Does that make any sense? It does. And I want to read from you again here, because I'm glad you brought this up. It made me think about something. Uh, when I was talking with Tony Bosses, we were chatting about um, about how there are folks trying to take the subjective experience out of psychedelic work. And mm-hmm. t- they're asking the question, which is I, I, a perfectly plausible question to ask. Do these chemicals uh, affect change without the subjective experience? And so I want to read this from you, and maybe that'll take us into that. Psychedelics okay. are not supposed suppressed because they are dangerous to users. They're suppressed because they provoke unconventional thought, which threatens any number of elites and institutions that would rather do our thinking for us. Let's, yeah. So there's, there does seem to be... Uh, I told... I said this maybe on a recent podcast that I was meditating a whole lot early on in my um, academic work, and I met with an old friend who had obviously become very interested in, I would say, pretty religious, conservative, Christian um, institutions. And when I shared with her that I was meditating, she, she thought I was problem. it was problematic. There was this <laughs> almost like demon. I mean, I grew horns and I was demonized. And that always stuck with me. And I said, what is this? So there does seem to be a tension between... Um, the, the kind of world that says, just go to this book and follow these protocols and principles and commandments and you'll be fine. But Lord knows, don't go within. Don't ever go and, and trust that weird part of yourself. That's the devil. So there does seem to be, um, and we're coming out of it, but a, a war of some kind, that may be dramatic, but an assault on uh, the imagination and consciousness well and the imagination yes yes go go into that yeah this is why i have little use for conventional organized religions because i think they're basically a set of principles uh and and dogma and so on and the main message is like like you mentioned before don't bother thinking that's very dangerous (laughs) you know we we have the answers here all you have to do is follow the the bible or whatever the precepts are of the religion you can turn off your mind you don't have to bother your pretty little head with any of these (laughs) questions just follow what we tell you to follow well people that want to live that way i suppose it's okay but i think they i think they have you know they volunteer for uh, basically an impoverished reality it can't be very rich you know, I think we need more imagination, and I think we have to, you know, uh, sort of uh, 
acknowledge and honor the power of the imagination. Isn't that where creativity comes from? And, and really science as well. I mean, science in the, in the purest sense is curiosity. Science is driven by curiosity, the desire to understand and expand knowledge and, you know, expand our apprehension of the world and the way that we interface with it. So uh, I don't know what those people are so afraid of, you know, that, you know, that you can't even go there. You can't even admit of the existence of the, of the unconscious and, and all of these things. I mean, you know, it, it, it's puzzling to me, but it seems like it's a very, uh, it's a fear-based, uh, you know, reaction to, or, 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 or place, place to operate from. It's like never take any risks, never, never have a forbidden thought. Well, what's a forbidden thought? You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to be one of those people. You know, I think that it's, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I mean, one of the virtues of science, if it's properly practiced, is uh, it never, ex you know, you never prove anything in science, right? You construct models. Yeah. You construct models of how you think things work. But you always hold in reserve the idea that your model may be wrong. And that's what science does. It's a way of asking questions of nature to test your assumptions. New data may come in that causes you to, you have to modify your hypothesis or you have to throw the whole thing out and start over. That's a beautiful thing. There are very few systems of, uh, of human thought in which the, you know, in which that approach to understanding is built in, certainly not religion. You know, religion will give you a set of, of precepts and principles and so on. It's like, they're not to be questioned. You know, in science properly done, everything is to be questioned. You know, now, it's not, it's often not practiced that way. Right. You know, I mean, science in a lot of ways, particularly these days when you've got big science and, you know, that's supported by grants and, and you know, prestige and academic, you know, all, all the things, all the games that scientists play can lead scientists to become very invested in their particular models and reluctant to admit that, you know, this is really not working. This is really not good. But in the purest sense, in the way that, you know, pure science is, should always be ready to question, you know, its models and change them as needed as new information comes in. That's how we expand our learning and understanding. I had one, uh, Bernardo Castro, a fellow I interviewed a while, uh, just a few episodes ago, called them convenient fictions. And, and I, I really liked the idea that we're consistently setting up these convenient fictions. But we're doing so right now. I, I'm dreaming you. You know, you're dreaming me. We're having all kinds of uh, subconscious and unconscious, you know, um, dreamlike images that are occurring to us even through this conversation. And so to, when we go to sleep or when we are in these states of psychedelic um, psychedelia, that 
ego, what we would call the ego, isn't in the driver's seat. And so we get a lot. And in and, and, um, Volume 5, Jung, Jung starts it with, we have two kinds of thinking, directed and non-directed thinking. And our culture does a whole lot of directed thinking, and we don't have a lot of space for ex- listening and being receptive and right, tuning right. into our dreams. So it does seem, seem odd that we don't really have that. And so, of course, it's created in the counterculture and you get go to a rave and take MDMA. You can get all, you know, take the tour of the cosmos. Uh, but it, it's not grounded in a particular tradition. It's kind of hedonism, hedonistic and, uh, and wild, which is fine. I'm not knocking yeah. that. I, I just think that we need to have these spaces for ecstatic experience. Right, exactly. Um, and I think... You know, I think the great value of psychedelics, uh, both uh, for uh, tools for exploring consciousness, and dare I use the word expanding consciousness, and its therapeutic use is the fact that it does disable this default node network, this set of expectations. What I sometimes call, I like my term better, I call it the reality hallucination. It is this model of the world that we create for ourselves uh, to to just navigate through the world. A lot of what the brain does is exclude information. You know, a certain amount of information comes through our sensory receptors and we take that and we sort of massage it. We associate it with memories and other kinds of things. We, create, we construct this model of the world. It's not reality. It's, it's, the, it's the model that we inhabit that lets us make sense of, mm-hmm. uh, of our, you know, of our existence. And it's very convenient, you know, on a day-to-day basis. But once in a while, you just want to <laughs> shut that fucker down, you know, and let <laughs> and see what unfolds. Yeah, what happens next, man, when I don't know it? <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's what psychedelics let you do. They let you set, step outside this reference frame temporarily. And if you do that, you've opened the way to ways of knowing that you normally, that the brain normally actively suppresses, you know, because it's not convenient to your, it's not germane to your immediate survival and, you know, driving on the freeway or whatever you have to do to be focused. But Again, if you create the right set and setting where you don't have to worry about those things, you can just demolish this thing. It will reestablish. You have to be confident of that. It's very resilient. The equilibrium will come back, but yeah. it will come back in a better way. It's like rebooting the computer. Literally, I think there's a lot of analogy to that. It's like, you know, you reboot your computer and it works better for a while all the cludge that builds up has gone temporarily i think that's what the uh being able to step outside this reference frame does so if you're if you're dealing with uh you know uh, a pathology for example depression or addiction or trauma these sorts of things just being able to distance yourself from yeah. it look at it from a different perspective in a way gives you power over that thing it gives you insight into that process and then that i think you could resolve it you know Uh, unlike the usual psychopharmaceuticals which just 
put band-aids on things. So go they, go deeper into that. Will you talk about the the healing nature? What do, what do we in the West do? What's our underlying assumption there? And what do folks in the you know indigenous traditions do as far as healing is concerned? Well, again, I, I you know I think in the West we have. Uh, you know, we have this scientific bias. And so, uh, you know, uh, therapists and so on, you know, I think this is why psychedelics, why we have to develop whole new therapeutic paradigms and protocols in the West, you know, because the the Western tradition, the Western medicine, uh, you know, is very much in denial of the of the spirit, you know, and the of the spiritual aspects. And uh, uh, you know, the medicine has been trying to exorcise the spirit out of medicine for 150 years. You know, we're just complex machines. You know, you write apply the right molecular monkey wrench, and you can fix the machine. <laughs> it's not that simple, <laughs> you know, and and indigenous traditions by contrast they uh, you know uh, i mean they whether they're stoned or not you know and and as part of day-to-day life they are aware of the existence and the validity of this sort of more or less unseen realm of experience you know which that's a reality for them they don't deny its existence. They don't experience it all the time, or maybe some do, but they, you know, so when they get into the psychedelic space, they're really going uh, into a, a realm that they know exists, that is a reality for them. And probably in some ways less uh, uh, less disrupting for them because it is part of their, you know, personal and cultural worldviews. Mm-hmm. You know, and for us mm-hmm. in the West, uh, uh, condition to reductionism and and all that, it's it's maybe more more disruptive, you know, but still very useful to to have this experience. You know, one of the things that the uh, that one of many things that psychedelics teach have taught to me, I think, about science is just recognize its limitations. You know, I get consistently the message, remember how little you know, you know, how little we know. And uh, science has been able to explain a great deal about our understanding, but we should not, you know, we should, we should remain humble because we should realize, yeah, we know a lot, but then in the grand scheme of things we don't really know very much at all you know and this is this is not depressing this is exciting to me you know because it means there's so much more to be discovered so much more to be learned we should not delude ourselves that we have anything like complete understanding of the way things are you know i mean i'm always amused when you know, every once in a while, some scientist will come out with a book that says, we pretty much have this thing figured out. <laughs> you know, there's a few minor things that we can, you know, a few T's to cross and I's to dot. But we know how this thing works. You don't know shit. That's the right. thing. We know a very, very tiny fraction of the cosmos of the universe. And we know we know 
tiny slices of reality in great detail, and that's useful. But as far as putting the full picture together, we don't really do that. I mean, we still have a lot to learn. I think people should remember that, especially scientists. You know, I mean, I, I think this is why I think, uh, in one reason, I think so, that's why scientists should be required to take philosophy of science yeah. as part of their curriculum because it forces them to think about what are we doing here? You know, what are what is the process of science and how should we approach it? Well, you and know? this this is your this is an area of your interest now with the McKenna Academy because you've got this scientific mystery school. Speak about that for a bit because I know that when I read your website it looks really exciting what y'all are doing. Yeah, well, that's just uh, an articulation of this idea. You yeah. know, uh, uh, science uh, grew out of natural philosophy, mm-hmm. you know, and natural philosophy is the precursor of science when it was from an era when it was less reductionist and when it recognized less emphasis on quantitation and reductionism and you know, only what is real can be measured, only what is measured can be real, etc. cetera. Uh, natural philosophy uh, uh, recognizes that there are ways of knowing that are valid, that we wouldn't necessarily think of as scientific, you know, and I think if science compared to natural philosophy is, uh, you know, is impoverished in some ways. Well, you're speaking about intuition. Well, intuition, yeah, intuition is part of it. Uh, Just a general uh, receptivity to information that's there in the environment, you know. uh, uh, And here's another place where psychedelics can be useful. They can be useful lenses through which to view reality. In some ways, they can be, they're tools they're scientific instruments. They, you can look at phenomena in the external world in a psychedelically altered state, and you can notice things about it that you don't normally notice because this default mode network is busy suppressing that. So science has, so psychedelics can actually help you bring the background forward, and that's important, you know, because they're things going on in the background and we're we're programmed not to notice them because you know it does not it's not immediately relevant to the you know bus that's coming in your direction or the saber-toothed tiger that happens to be attacking you you want focus when those sorts of things happen but when you're not in that kind of situation uh it can be very useful for opening yourself up to uh, phenomena in nature that normally we just overlook. It's not that they're not there. We just don't notice them. And again, you know, there are instances where scientists uh, have, uh, uh, you know, had insights from psychedelics and, uh, and those insights stand up over time, you know, like, like Carrie Mullis, you know, good example of the molecular biologist who figured out the, the uh, PCR reaction, won the Nobel Prize for it. He was very upfront about the fact that his experiences with LSD 
yeah. enabled him to visualize these processes, you know, and get down with the molecules, as he put it. And then in the cold light of sobriety, he was able to make sense of what what he was his insight. Uh, Crick, too. Uh, was it Crick? Yeah, I think it was Crick. Also, finally, on his deathbed, admitted that uh, that LSD had contributed to his understanding of the double helix. He didn't want to say it, but I guess on his deathbed, it became okay for him. So that's that's a you know psychedelics can be tools for discovery in the same way that you know telescopes or microscopes can be. That that's fascinating about the the you know the revelation of the double helix. It's you would think that somebody who has an insight on a substance is like, hey, by the way, we got to talk about this because this is awesome. I've had incredible insight, but instead we are in a cultural space of repression and suppression, and so we're. And Kripal talks about a lot about this. You know that even in the academic circles, Eliade, who had radical experiences, mystical experiences, and couldn't really talk about them in academic settings, but had to write mm-hmm. under a pseudonym and to, to just to try to make sense of what in the hell happened to me and how do I understand those experiences given my presuppositions of what reality is, what tangible reality is, mechanistic, materialistic reality is, and what it's not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think So I think that one of the... Because you have had an overwhelming experience with... Um, I guess abundance of ayahuasca experiences. Do, I've do had you, a lot. Yeah. Has that affected you in any way other than expansive? <laughs> uh. Well, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I. I guess it's made me more humble. Wow. You know. I mean, I hope so because. Uh, I mean, this. This. Uh, you know. This. This insight about how little we know basically is a message I get from ayahuasca all the time. You know, just remember how little you know. We do not have, you don't have this thing figured out, you know. And, uh, you know, that's one of the consistent messages that comes through to me for, for, from ayahuasca or whatever. Uh, you know, psilocybin is the same, same thing. I think, uh, uh, so I, I, I don't know, but, uh, uh, I feel like my ayahuasca experiences have been, have been gifts in a certain way. You know, they, they are this lens through which you can view the world. And I, I think it's good to, to, you know, just remember, just try to remember how little we know and, uh, so there's no real room for arrogance, uh, no room for arrogance in, in this. And arrogance is something that uh, tends to be a uh, occupational hazard in some way of scientists. Yes. You know? and, Lost your uh, feet again. Lost your camera. Yeah. Just. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's always Dennis, doing that to me. Okay. I, uh, I I do want to be sensitive. You're being extremely generous with your time, and I want to be sensitive to our time. Um, but so I, I want to give you plenty of runway to talk about the McKenna, the McKenna Academy, if there's anything else. And I want to look through just a couple of notes because I have tons of places to go. But I'm, I'm wondering if we did kind of tend to this 
your your understanding from a pharmacological and kind of imaginative or subjective space why these substances tend to bring about this experience um, and maybe the answer is we just don't know but i'm curious what you'd say about that and then of course uh, anything else that you feel we need to get to before we okay. we finish today uh, now okay i'm just going to abandon this external camera it's not it's more trouble than it's worth you know <laughs> so anyway now you can see me and now it won't do that well so i'm sorry i was messing with messing my with your stuff sure tech so what was the question again well what i was trying to get at is this this one last little piece that i it's called the hard problem because it's on, on some level really difficult to solve and science has never understood this so mm-hmm. I, I think then the move that we tend to make is that our models for our reality are needing to shift. Rather than sit there with this seemingly unanswerable question, let's expand our understanding of what reality is to include these seemingly unreal um, experiences that are not measurable in the consensus social spaces. So I'm, I'm curious about your just knowledge as a an explorer of the world, an explorer of the mind, and now working closely in the um, ethnopharmacological world of what is it that predisposes us, for DMT, for example, you know, what is it that predisposes us to have such a radical patterned experience when we ingest this molecule? Well, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't think you can wrap it up into a nutshell, you know, I mean, I think, again, it comes back to, you know, consciousness emerged, I, I, I'm basically a, a panpsychist, I've sort of settled on panpsychism as a, as a reasonable explanatory We model. define that for folks? Panpsychism is the idea that consciousness or mind, whatever you want to call it, uh, is built into the most fundamental levels of reality. You know, everything is conscious, mm-hmm. you know, and, and indigenous societies are animist. And I think they have the right idea. I think that everything, I think consciousness isn't just an aspect of existence. It's fundamental to reality is you know, the Planck constant or the speed of light or things like mm-hmm. that. There is everything from electrons to to galaxies in some ways uh, are conscious in the sense that they experience their, their being. That may not be a conscious experiencing, but whatever they are, they're experiencing it. And then you have unique situations where you have you know, animals with complex nervous systems with all these extremely uh, complex uh, structures stuffed into very small spaces like our skulls. And I think when you <laughs> when that happens, you get emergent properties, you know, but it's still it's still matter being itself, but matter, you know, consciousness emerges out of uh, uh, unique arrangements with matter and and depending on you know it, they're not separate i mean we have this cartesian dualism right. that has been the curse of western 
you know, philosophy for however long it's been, 500 years or, or whatever. And it's, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the way things are. You know, there's no uh, separation between the inner and the outer. These terms are not even useful if you think of it you know in a certain way it's mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. i mean it's it's the old psychedelic insight right which sounds trivial when you say it but we are all one right and right. there is no difference it sounds silly to say it but in fact it's actually true you know uh every everything that uh we experience is an experience of this this uh this field of consciousness, if you want to put it that way, that is just fundamental to existence. And everything within that field experiences it in its own way. So that, to my mind, is a, is a useful way to, to look at things. It certainly is. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, yeah. I just had the experience of really looking at the, the you know, we were talking earlier about being as simple as it is being in the present being aware of what's happening right now and uh i i think that's what ecstasy and ecstatic experience does it in art and that's i think one of the reasons why those arenas are so valuable because the individual is really present with this merging together of the inner and outer world i mean i'm, I'm my imagination is imaging and i'm putting form to that whether it's uh, visual art or uh, figuring out the complex molecular structure of some medicine that's going to be used for to treat an illness that comes to somebody in a dream, and then I have to put form to that and work out the right. the formula. Right. Yeah, I think I think that that's one of the uh, again one of the useful things of, of psychedelics, but also art and other types of experience things that do kind of put you in the moment, you know, because our consciousness, you know, it, it's, it's very hard to be in the moment, even though the moment is all there is, you know, this, 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 the fact that experience of the moment is all there is, but it seems like it's very hard to just, you know, be in that moment. I mean, that's the whole be in, be here now conundrum, you know. No, I'm thinking about, you know, what <laughs> happened yesterday, what happened a few hours ago, what I'm going to do after we end this conversation, yeah. all of these things. The we can't, you know, we can't just sit and focus. And and the, uh, the psychedelics give us a, a way to do that, to maybe calm down and just experiencing the nowness, the of of isness, if you want yeah. to put it that way, you know, uh, it's always there, but uh, it's hard to, uh, you know, calm down and and just see that clearly, and and so anything that helps you do that is is a good thing. Well, uh, this is what I think about when I look at these commandments, and one of them is, don't create false idols. I think that image applies to what we're talking about, not to take something that's present and really irrepresentable, it's an experience, not to create something concrete and reducible out of that. Like, right. So, but we have, a t we have an inherent tendency to do that, because I've got to interact with the outer world, but then 
if we let that sucker go too far and we don't have these kind of ecstatic balancing acts where we put ourselves kind of in right relationship to our full experience, then I think we're living a uh, life is not as juicy. Right. Well, we're always trying to explain it to ourselves. Yes. And I think, I think that that's, that's in some ways a, uh, you know, the fault of our sort of Western point of view, you know, and even literacy to a certain extent. I think if, if you go into the jungle with an indigenous person, particularly who one who is not literate, you know, doesn't have those filters because you can't be literate without having a point of view. Right. Right. You have to have a separation between whatever Subject. it is. Yeah. Yeah. Some, but they don't have those filters. I think they inhabit a world. You can be in the same jungle at the same time. They're seeing it very differently and they're seeing a lot more that's going on than you're seeing. You know, because we have these filters built up from at least the earliest uh, uh, childhood, you know. So uh, I think that's that's partly what psychedelics can help help us learn is to get back to that uh, that place where, uh, you know, there's nothing but subjectivity. You Symbols. know, that's yeah. all there is. Yeah. Yeah. You're a Jungian so, at heart, Dennis. What's that? You're a Jungian at heart. I am a Jungian <laughs> at heart. Yeah, yeah, I am. I am. Yeah. Jung was very important in my thinking. Yeah. So I didn't get to talk much about the academy, McKenna yeah. Academy, but people can go on the website and see what we're about. We just completed, you probably know, this big conference. Yes. And... Uh, Boy, that was an experience putting that on, and uh, and it was great. We got a lot of feedback from it, so people can look at uh, espd55.com. Links if you below. want to look at some of the talks and so forth. And I, I and did. I got, your, I got your book from the fifty, and it it's such a great. Well, okay, only, is it beautiful? But it's a great read that. Um, that and you'll there'll be putting be a, out more. There'll be a follow up volume for this one. Yeah, we're, that will come out next year sometime. But in the spirit of what's now become this series, we're going to bring out a, a symposium volume for this. And, uh, you know, uh, some of the talks were fantastic. Some were not as good as I'd hoped. But in general, it was a great event. And we've got lots of good feedback from it. And, you know, and so people can look at that if they want. Good and note. Look below. I'll link all this, and I will also introduce you in the uh, introduction, and I'll have some references to all these spaces too. So look below in the show notes for any of these links. Okay. Um, what else? Us, Anything let else? Let me know when it's out, so we can put it on our social media. We've got a whole team now that does <laughs> nothing but put this stuff out on social media. It's and... the Mystery School social media. Yeah, twenty first century mystery school. <laughs> we are a nonprofit. Oops, I just spilled my coffee. That wasn't good. Uh, and so you know, we can accept donations that are even tax deductible. But uh, there's a lot of content there, so uh, explore it. And I will. And please, to the listener, do the same thing. 
I, I can just say thank you so very much for making this time and for writing this book and running this ex, these experiments uh, because uh, an explorer like myself gets to learn from your wisdom and experience. Thank you very much, Dennis. Thank you so much, John. It's been a pleasure. It's a pleasure, man.